night to Gethsemane and the record that we find in Mark chapter 14. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to open to Mark chapter 14. For two Lord's Days, we have considered Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane, along with his disciples, especially Peter, James, and John. And what I want to do tonight, I thought it would be good to return to this, and then, Lord willing, we'll come back next Lord's Day and look also at some of these things. But I want us to focus tonight on the 36th verse there, and it's in this prayer of Christ where he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So let's read this. I'm going to start at verse 32 and just read to that verse 36. So Mark 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And let's again seek the Lord in prayer for his help. Father, we thank you that we can come before your holy word. Thank you that we can come to you, to your throne of grace, and we can ask for help in our time of need. And we pray in this time of opening up your word that it would be unto your glory that it would be to our benefit that we would feed upon your word, that our faith would be strengthened, Lord, even that some would be awakened here as we have prayed often. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Never was a human will so completely and perfectly subject to the will of God than the Son of God as he walked this earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray what he himself intensely desired, and that was that the will of God would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And that is to say that the will of God would be done on earth perfectly. That was the desire, the intense desire of the heart of our Savior. His own prayer throughout his entire life, was this, that God's will would be done. And in a special way here, a more intense way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, with the cross practically before him, as he's going to complete that work that the Father has given him to do. This was his prayer, that the will of God would be done. So again, he says, take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. As I said before in the first sermon I preached on this, this was the banner over his life. These words in this prayer, these awesome words really that we have here, it was over his entire life. And it was far more than just an earnest desire in the heart of Christ. It was an actuality in his life. 
It was a desire that was fully realized in the life of Christ, that the will of God was done perfectly. So that Jesus could never say, as the Apostle Paul wrote, and as we certainly say, the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Jesus could never have said that. The good that he willed to do, he always did. And the evil that he desired, willed not to do, that he never practiced. So as we look again tonight at these things, I want to look at these words, verse 36, and ask two basic questions. And first, really the primary question here is what did this mean for Jesus? Not just to have this prayer, but really to live with this as the banner over his whole life. Not what I will, but what you will. What did it mean for Jesus, the Son of God? But then we also want to consider tonight, what does it mean for us to live with this same desire, overruling, governing our whole lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, all that we do? So what does it mean for Jesus? What does it mean for us? So firstly, what did this mean for the Son of God? As he's saying this in the garden, not what I will, but what you will. And as we again look at this solemn scene, this sacred scene in the garden, and we see our Lord agonizing, we see him in prayer, earnest prayer. As we look at this again, at least one thing is clear, and that is that going to the cross and laying down his life for sinners as a ransom was not an easy thing for Christ. And we looked at that the first time we were considering this text. It wasn't easy for him just because he's the son of God. This is real agony. These are real prayers. And as Luke tells us, it was real sweat It was not easy for him to go. In fact, it was harder and it was more costly for the Son of God to go to the cross than we can ever know. Our redemption not only cost the Father dearly, he didn't spare his own Son, but he gave him up for us all. It not only cost the Father dearly, but clearly as we're looking at this text and as we go on in the Gospel of Mark, we will see that it cost Jesus dearly as he's laying down his life for us. And yet we see that Christ was perfectly willing. He was perfectly willing because it was the Father's will that he would do so. It was the Father's will that there would be this way of salvation opened up, this fountain for sin and uncleanness. God desired to reconcile sinners to himself, through the blood of the cross. And Jesus knew this. So he delighted and was perfectly willing to do this. And at the same time was agonizing and praying. So there's mystery here. What's the short answer then? What what did this mean for Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done. The short answer is simply obedience to the point of death, as Paul says, even the death of the cross. That's what it meant for Jesus. It was costly. But what I want to do now is reflect a bit further on this, this banner which stood over the entire life of Christ. And before we do that, a brief theological note here. As we're thinking about the will of Jesus, 
the will of the God-man, the unique God-man. We're thinking about the will of one who is fully God and fully man. We're thinking about the will of the incarnate Son of God. So we're dealing with a mystery that we cannot grasp and get our minds around. But we need to affirm this. Jesus, being truly human, had a truly human will. And being truly divine, he had a truly divine will. And that means two wills and not one. So two wills and not one. And to use the language of the Chalcedonian Creed, the two wills of Christ, the human will and the divine will, are not confused, changed, divided, or separated. So without apology, I say and you can say that Jesus had a true human will. That's my theological note. His human will was never stubborn. It was never rebellious. It was never at odds with the Father's will. As he grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and in favor with men, as we read in Luke 2, as Jesus grew, his will grew stronger and stronger, but not in a selfish way, not in a self-seeking way. His will grew stronger and stronger in perfect agreement and submission to the Father's will. Like any other person, Jesus had to undergo a process of growth. Think about the humiliation involved in that. Here is the Son of God through whom all things are created, and he is subjecting himself to this process of growth that we all have to go through from infancy to childhood and beyond. And then, of course, all the other things that come about with being a true man. Here is the humiliation of Christ. So he has this process of growth throughout life. And part of that was the maturation of his mind and of his will. But unlike you and me, there was never a stage in the process of his growth where there was any sin of the will. And think how marvelous that is. There was never once any sin of the mind or of the will in the Son of God, in Jesus, our Savior. And it's all the more marvelous because where does sin usually show up first, if not exclusively? Where does it show up first in our lives, in the lives of our children? It's in their wills. The first signs that our precious, adorable children are, in fact, depraved is when we see little exercises of their will. And it's their will versus yours. And it might be very small, it might be minor, but it does show up early. It might simply be resisting a diaper change. But there we see, from birth, there's a stubborn will. Never the case with Jesus. A book was given to my parents some years ago, and I stumbled across it. I don't remember when, but I was looking through things at my parents' house. And uh, as I'm told, it was given by, I think it was the owner of a daycare that I attended when I was a really little guy. And these are some of my earliest memories at this daycare. But the book was The Strong-Willed Child by James 
Dobson, and it was given for me. <laughs> they gave this because of me. I'm not sure why, but apparently, <laughs> apparently I was strong-willed. Now, I've not read that book. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if I could recommend it to you. But I think many of you would have had the same experience raising children, or perhaps now you're dealing with a strong-willed child. Now, Jesus was never strong-willed in the sense that we are strong-willed. So he, he didn't have a stubborn and rebellious will. He wasn't demanding his own way as we so often do. Far, far from it. We read in, in, again in Luke 2. He's 12 years old here. Luke 2.51, we read that he went down with them, with his parents, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, obedient to them, the son of God. He was obedient to his parents. But I would say this, that Jesus was strong-willed in the sense, if we can put it this way, of having a stubborn resolve to submit to the will of God in all things. So we could say that Jesus did have a strong will, and it was a will that grew increasingly stronger as he got older and as he matured and grew in wisdom. It was a strong will that was not a self-will, but a God will. So we can assert that. Nothing could persuade him. Nothing would persuade him to in any way swerve from the will of God. Not even Satan mustering all of his power and his schemes against him. Think of in chapter 1 of Mark, we saw Jesus there tempted in the wilderness 40 days, and yet he could not be tempted and led away from the will of God. Parents, think of this. Just meditate on this fact. Never once in raising Jesus did Joseph and Mary have to train an unruly will, to correct an unruly, stubborn will. Never once did they have to do that or use the rod of correction. Now, there was, of course, because he's a real, true, full human. There was real childishness in Jesus when he was a child. But there was never that foolishness that we read of in Proverbs that's bound up in the heart of children. All children who've ever been born except Jesus. There was never that foolishness bound up in his heart that had to be driven far away. He was never once naughty. Never once rebellious. Never once mean to his siblings, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. Never hit them, never took things from them in a mean and nasty way. Never disrespectful to his parents. He was never pouty. He was never lazy. He was never rude. And on and on we could go. Just reflecting on this. It's good to do. Now, children, I want to speak to you especially, and this applies to all children, old children too, but especially to young children. If you want to make your parents happy, and I hope you do, and you want to make God happy, obey your parents. The first commandment with a promise. Obey your parents. Follow the Lord Jesus in this. Consider Jesus when he was young and who Jesus is, and he was subject to his parents. So make God happy, make your parents happy. 
obey them, listen to them, be subject to them, but if you really want to make them happy, what would make them happiest is to know the Lord Jesus as your own Savior and Lord. Now, as Jesus grew physically and became stronger and stronger in spirit, he was continually being filled with wisdom, we read in Luke 2. And what was the result of this? That Jesus was continually being filled with wisdom and growing stronger and stronger through life. The result was growth in his understanding and embrace, not only of the will of God in general, but in particular, the will of God for him as the unique son of God. He grew and grew to understand more of who he was and why he had come. So that as he's crawling on the ground as an infant, surely he has a stronger mind and will understanding who he is and what he's come to do as a 12-year-old and then a 16-year-old and a 25-year-old on to the time when he's about 30 and he goes out into the wilderness to be baptized. So Jesus grew in his will and That is why we find things in the word of God. And in particular, in John, this is emphasized. We find things where Jesus is saying, as a grown man, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food and to finish his work. That's John chapter 4, verse 34. Or again in John chapter 5, 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. Again, in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this was especially in regard to that redemptive work, bringing many sons to glory. So you can survey any of the Gospels and look at all of the activity of Jesus in the Gospels, and you can know that all of this was done in an active submission to the will of God. There was cheerful obedience that we see in the Gospels, in all of this, submitting to the Father's will. In Psalm 40, it was written by David, but it ultimately applies to Christ. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 10. But in Psalm 40, we read these words, David writing this, Then I said, Behold, I come... In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Now, David could not live up to that. Only Christ could live up to that. I delight to do your will, O my God. So again, that banner over his life. We could even put that over his life. Here he comes, delighting to do the Father's will. Everything you see in the gospel, he's doing it in submission to the will of his father, and he's delighting to do it. So as we come to the garden and see our Lord in agony, his heart is still crying, I delight to do your will, O my God. Even as his lips are saying, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So we go back to our question, which was, what did this mean for Jesus? What did this prayer mean for him there in verse 36? 
It meant throughout his life, at every stage of development, a complete trust in the Father and a full obedience. And those two go together, trust and obedience. He's trusting the Father and he's obeying his will. And that is in general, so for example, the Ten Commandments that he perfectly upheld, all of the Ten Commandments always. But also the will of God specifically for him as the Son of God and as the suffering servant of God who would lay down his life for sinners. So here in Gethsemane, even though he recoiled at the horror of the cross, And what it meant that he would be drinking the cup of wrath, which was not his cup, but ours for our sin, that he would be drinking this cup of wrath and bearing the wrath of God as he's bearing our sins on the cross. As he truly recoiled at the horror of that, knowing that he would feel forsaken by the father, he did not retreat but we see him rising from prayer in the garden and advancing victoriously. Now, only Jesus, of all people throughout history, has ever, in and of himself, been fully pleasing to God, acceptable in the sight of God. So if the banner over the life of Jesus was this, not my will be done, but yours be done, we could also say, that it was the declaration of the Father when he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father declares that over him. At his baptism as he's beginning his ministry, at the transfiguration, but he declares it over his whole life and especially as he's completing the work that he was sent to do. So Jesus alone has a perfect obedience. And by that perfect obedience has obtained a spotless righteousness and therefore is acceptable, perfectly acceptable in the sight of God. And this is where for us there's the good news for great joy. Because you and I don't have a perfect obedience. Therefore, we don't have a perfect righteousness. Therefore, in and of ourselves, you and I could never be accepted in the sight of God. We could never be right with God. And so we need the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of his obedience. How does it become ours? Well, this is the good news. This is what God has chosen to do to save sinners. His righteousness is actually accounted as ours. By faith, we receive it freely so that we have this spotless righteousness of Christ, as if we actually ourselves had always obeyed and never been rebellious. And therefore, God accepts us, accepts us in union with the beloved Son. He accepts us as his beloved children. So that's what, briefly, this means for Jesus Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. But let's think now, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us to live with this same overruling desire, this desire to govern our lives? And I want to be clear as we move to this point of application that this isn't the main concern of the text. 
But it is surely a valid application, especially in light of the call to discipleship, which Jesus himself gave back in chapter 8, where he says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, first, I want us to think more broadly and theoretically, then we're going to think more practically. So just thinking broadly and theoretically first, what does this mean for us to live with this desire for the will of God to be done in all things? I want you to think back to another garden, and this garden is Eden, where things first went wrong, where Adam and Eve sinned. What happened? How did our first parents fall from that original state, a sinless state, a state of bliss and of communion with God. How did they fall from that condition? Well, the answer is that they sinned against God. They rebelled against God. It was at root their will against God's will, which God had made known to them and said, you could eat freely of all these trees, but there's a tree in the midst of the garden that you shall not eat from. So when they sinned, when they took the forbidden fruit, it was not, oh, I didn't know that God had said, I can't take this. It was just, it was ignorance. No, it wasn't that. They knew, and yet they rejected the will of God. They refused the will of God. It was rebellion, and that is at root, really, to all sin. Ever since then, that's been our default position. We're born in Adam with corrupt natures. We're born naturally stubborn and not pliable. We're bent toward rebellion, whether that's toward God. It's ultimately toward God, but toward our parents or other authorities, we are bent toward rebellion by nature. That's because of the fall. So we find in the Bible such sad and sweeping statements as these, which we find in Genesis 6. Just before the flood, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or what about in Psalm 14? I could turn to several things we're not going to, but in Psalm 14, we read another sweeping statement. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And on and on we could go about our condition. So what's needed? What does it mean for us being so naturally rebellious to get to the place where we actually from the heart say, God, not what I will, but what you will. What does it mean? What needs to happen? Is it sheer willpower? Or maybe it's just a good upbringing. Or maybe it's good moral and religious instruction. We see immediately all of this doesn't get to the issue because there's a radical change needed, a change that only God can do, and that's a work of God's power and grace. And if you just want to sum it up, 
The Bible uses this language, we need a new heart. We need a new nature. We need our stubborn wills renewed so that we would be willing and even delighting to do what God wills. That's what we need. Nothing less than a new heart is needed. Without this, nobody would come to Christ in repentance and faith. Nobody would be willing. It's just wishful thinking to think that somehow with our bad hearts that we would will to come to Christ and to live a life pleasing to God. We wouldn't. Now, I know some of you here need a new heart. My question for you tonight is, we cry out for it for you. Will you cry out for it for yourself? You need a new heart, a radical change. God's willing to do it. And you say, well, I can't cry out. I don't have the desires. Cry out to God for a new heart. If you've seen anything of your stubbornness, anything of your sin, cry out to God and he will give you a new heart. Join your prayers to ours. What does a new heart bring about? It brings about new desires. We've all experienced this. New desires to live for God, for his will to be done in our lives. But this means, as long as we're in these bodies, this means also a new war. So a new heart brings about new desires. It brings about a new war, new conflict in our life because the renewed heart no longer delights in sin no longer delights in the ways of the world as it once did, or the lusts of the flesh. But it must war against these continually. Every believer knows this by experience. If you've been walking at all with the Lord for any time, you know exactly when Paul is saying in Romans 7, you know what he's saying, and you feel the pain, you feel the tension, you've been in the battle if God has given you a new heart. There's a new war. Romans 7, you know these words well. Romans 7, verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Not by nature. He's saying this as a man renewed. I now will to do good, but I find that evil is present with me. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So that's just more broadly and theoretically, what does this mean for sinners to really have this desire that Jesus expresses in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane for the will of God to be done and not their own will? Well, it means a new heart and a new war in the life of the believer. But I want to end by thinking about this more practically. What does it mean for us? Those of us who, by God's grace, have those new hearts, new desires, and we feel this battle, this tension. What does it mean? In a word, it means this, a life of knowing God's will, of doing God's will, and of submitting to God's will in all things. 
And my plan right now is to deal just with the first two of those. Knowing God's will, doing God's will. We'll look at those briefly tonight and then, Lord willing, focus more on submitting to God's will in all things. But first, we must ever be seeking a greater knowledge of God's will. A greater knowledge of the will of God. Not his hidden secret will. That's not what I'm talking about. It's his his will which he has revealed, the word of God, the Bible. Have you ever tried to please somebody who has not clearly made known to you what they want, what their will is? You try to guess. You think maybe I can sort of read them, but it's difficult and it's frustrating at times. God has not left us to guess what he wants, what he requires, what his will is. In fact, he's given us a lot of revelation. We have the word of God. He has spoken to us. We know the mind of God. So he not just gives us the desire to please him, but he tells us plainly what it is that pleases him and what it is that does not please him. And this is a great blessing. So we know the Bible teaches us certainly about God, who he is, what he's like, what he has done. But it also tells us what he requires of us as his creatures. It's a precious gift that we have. We have the mind of the living God in a language we can understand. A precious gift. We need to know it. We can't say, not what I will, O God, but your will be done, and then neglect our Bibles. And say, I want to do your will, that's my desire, and yet I'm not going to try to know what your will is. So we need to resolve to get to know our Bibles, to know the will of God, to study the word of God. Day by day, we should try to know the will of God as best we can. Line upon line, day after day, year after year, as long as God gives you breath to be a student of this divine book so that we might know the mind of God, that we might commune with God and know what pleases him, and on and on, the benefits of the word of God, you know them well. As a young believer, I remember latching on to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, and I was very excited when I first read this, first time I was reading through the Bible as a senior in high school. And I remember thinking, that's it. That's it. And at the time, I I certainly had no sense that the Lord was calling me to the ministry, except that this right here is my calling, so to speak. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. We could say to study the Bible. He committed himself to it and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's it. He committed himself to know the word of God, to do the word of God, and then to help others to know it and do it, to teach it. Well, because of the new war we're just talking about that new war that we have, the conflict, and also the fact that God doesn't just pluck us out of this world when he saves us, we need to be constantly in the word of God. 
What if we stop taking in the word of God? I know a lot of you have been walking with the Lord a long time. A lot of you have vast knowledge of the word of God. You, for the most part, know exactly what God requires of you. But what if you, because of that, said, I'm going to stop taking in the word of God? I believe you would eventually find yourself, all of us would, being conformed to this world. Rather than transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul writes. We would find our wills being shaped by the culture around us rather than by the word of God. And if we've totally withdrawn from culture, we would find that there's enough corruption left in us to lead us astray. So we need to be constantly shaped by the word of God. So I'm just trying to encourage you to do what you already have a desire to do. Read the word of God. Study the word of God. Hear sermons preached. Feed your soul upon God's word so that you more and more might know the mind of God. Isn't that an awesome thing? You can know the mind of the living God and have your will shaped by God's will so that you begin to just instinctively almost will the things that God wills. But knowing the will of God, however essential this is, it's not enough because we need to join our resolve to knowing God's will with a resolve to doing it. So that's what we consider here lastly, doing the will of God. And I don't think I need to elaborate much on this. A desire for God's will to be done is not just general, but it's specific. It's personal. And what I mean by that, it's not just, God, I desire your will to be done in this world by these people and by these people. It is that, but it's also specific. It's in my life. I want your will to be done. What good is it to be students and hearers of the word only and not doers of the word of God? You know, James picks this up. He gives that picture in James chapter one. He says, it's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He's saying, what good is it to be a hearer only of the word and not a doer? So we aim to know God's will in order to apply it, in order to do it. And we should remember that when we read the word, hear the word, study the word, meditate upon the word, it should always be with a view to application. An application, it's not just always do this or stop doing this or don't do that. It is that often. But it might be what we've seen in the garden, for example, as we look at our Savior, as he's coming to the cross, it might be greater love for Christ, praise, thanksgiving. So application is really multifaceted. But we should be studying the word of God with a view to application, to doing the word, to applying it to our lives, to being changed by the word of God, shaped by the word of God. It should be our daily prayer, just as Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Starting in my life, in my heart, in my home, and then you can move out. That should be our prayer every day. 
And we should pray specifically in line with the word of God and with the will of God revealed in his word. And that's where these two things come together. So you think through it. Just going to suggest a few things here. But as you're praying, you pray about your home life. So those of us who are married and we think about what God has very clearly revealed to us, husbands were to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we have other commandments. Wives, respect your, hus- respect your husbands. Parents, we have duties that we know. We, we, we don't have to pray, oh God, if it be your will, help me to love my wife. Help me to raise up, or you know, if it be your will, that I would be whatever it might be. Children, for you it might be. If it be your will that I obey my parents, it is the will of God. And so we ought to pray in line with the will of God. Oh God, you have told me. I am to love my wife. I am to raise my children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I am to respect my husband. I am to submit to my husband, whatever it might be for you. Think about your church life here. All of the one another passages, I don't know how many there are, but all of those passages that say one another, love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, we should pray specifically for these things. So when we're saying, let your will be done In this church, we can pray things like that we would be people who bear each other's burdens. Oh God, I've been selfish. I've not been bearing my brother's and sister's burdens. I know it's your will. Give me a heart to do it. Help me. Take away this selfishness. Forgive me of my sin. Give me more of the mind of Christ and on and on. So we should pray specifically thinking in these categories, home life, church life. You think of your work as we were thinking about labor this morning and why we do what we do and how we do it for the Lord. Pray specifically. Those are just some examples, but, but as you think about this and as you meditate on this and as you pray, and, it, and if you've never done this, it's very helpful to take the Lord's Prayer as a model. And as you do that, don't just say the words, your will be done, but Take it as an opportunity to think through these areas of your life and pray specifically that God's will would be done in your life. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. Here's where the battle rages daily and where we're tempted to be complacent. But we have good reason to be hopeful for change. If you're here and you know, say, Lord, there are these besetting sins that I have. There's this, there's this, there's this. I want your will to be done, and yet I see again and again I'm failing. We have good reason to be hopeful. If you're a believer, good reason to be hopeful for change, confident in the battle and in the fight, not in ourselves, but confident in God, the one who both begins the good work and who is completing it until the day of Christ, as we read in Philippians 1. So the, the one who makes us willing, God, by his power and grace, also makes us able. Philippians 2, that great text, which brings these things together, this tension in the Christian life, working, and yet it's by God's grace. Work out your own salvation, says Paul, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we should be confident 
because God's still working in us. If he's begun a good work, he is working. He's given us his word, and so as we apply ourselves to it, and we seek to do it, by God's grace, we will grow. This is the Christian life, starting with a new heart, new desires, a new war and battle. And then these desires, this overarching desire, the cry of every true believer's heart, oh God, not what I will, but what you will. So we go on day by day in the strength of the Lord, seeking to know God's will, seeking to do the will of God and to submit to the will of God in all things. Now, why do we do it? Are we trying to earn God's favor? No. We do it because God has done a good work in us, because God has saved us. God has made us his beloved children. He has poured out his love freely on us, and we love him. We want to please him. We want to do what he says. We want to be what he wants us to be. That is the heart of a believer. So that's why we sing, and it really, it's a prayer that we just sung. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, your will. Hold over my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. Now, I want to end with a prayer. This is an inspired prayer. And it's a prayer, a good prayer for ourselves and for one another, especially in light of our theme tonight. And this comes from Colossians chapter 1. And you could just listen here as I read this, but I would encourage you, if you've not studied and meditated upon this prayer and many of the great prayers of Paul, it's a great one for your own prayer life and for praying for others. This is Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's not the end of his prayer. That or so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good work that you have begun in us. Thank you that you made us willing Lord, we thank you that you have put it in our hearts to delight to do your will. And we pray that that desire, that delight would only increase. That we would be more like our Savior in every way. Lord, help us to know and embrace your will as you have clearly revealed it in your word. And help us to be doers of your word, to do your will. And Lord, we pray that, again, some who have not known Christ 
who yet have a stubborn will, that you would subdue them tonight. Bring them to a teachable frame of mind. Humble them tonight and bring them to the Savior that they might find life and joy and peace in him. We pray in his name. Amen.